Welcome, everyone, to the Two Tongues Podcast. Consider this your invitation to join Kyle and Chris on a journey through our minds. Where we explore the questions that have fascinated us for as long as we can remember. Could anarchy actually work? Does God exist? And just how did the cosmos get here anyway? Let me be the Virgil to your Dante, the Sacagawea to your Lewis and Clark. Let's take the guided tour through the dark chambers of our unconscious, seeking answers to the most important and unsettled questions of our shared existence. Ready or not, here we go. Here we go indeed. Welcome back, everyone. To another episode of the Two Tongues Podcast. Chris coming at you today with another solo episode. The Christmas break got in the way of our normal cadence, um, so we may have missed one or two of these things, but um, what I'm doing today is I'm wrapping up Hegel in four parts. So this is part four of Hegel. This is where we're going to wrap it up. Um, it was tough. Hegel was tough. Um, a little bit tougher than I expected because I don't know if it's me reading into Hegel. Like a part of me thinks that there's some part of me that is picking and choosing the, the stuff in the phenomenology of spirit that I like, or maybe there's a bunch of stuff in there that I don't I don't understand well, so I've sort of dismissed it or written it off. Um, and there there is some stuff in there like that. So you know I don't know what the explanation is if it's a bias on my part or lack of understanding, but there's some bits in there that get extra confusing. Not that Hegel isn't confusing enough, you know, reading the phenomenology of spirit, you'll find that. And we talked about that before, the language, you know, just just strictly the language, talking about consciousness, self-consciousness, using the word spirit, and all these different ways. It's confusing. And, um, you know, it, 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 it may be some of that. Uh, but what I'm going to do is give you my best uh, attempt at wrapping up phenomenology of spirit. And the way it seemed to me when I got to the end was something like something like a creation myth. So we talk a lot about religion on this podcast, and creation myths happen to be my favorite, my favorite kind of, of myth, my favorite part of religion, period. It's the stories that we come up with to talk about how we got here and how the cosmos got here. You know, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, that kind of stuff. And whether it's the Hopi Indians telling the story, the ancient Greeks, the ancient Indians, um, you know, the Bible, uh, wherever, wherever that comes from, those stories are really interesting. You know, the Mayan Papu Vu, um, I mean, there's just so, so many, and the stories are are wildly different and really interesting and colorful and, you know, stories about how we got here and how the cosmos got here. Those are, those are the ones that hold the most allure to me, always have, always have. And Hegel does something like that here. And that was kind of a, a little bit of a surprise and maybe it shouldn't have been, um, you know, digging a little bit into Hegel and finding out that he went to seminary and studied religion, you know, maybe it shouldn't be a surprise. But he was writing philosophy, and he was writing it in a really academic way during a time when there was a lot of people who were pulling away from religious explanations in favor of 
rational explanations. Um, and, and, and Hegel was no different. So it's interesting, though, that when he's talking about consciousness, and that's what he's trying to do in this phenomenology of spirit, when he uses the word spirit there, it's not really intended to be a religious thing. It's, like I said before, it's intended to mean something like consciousness. So I think what I'll do really quickly is I'm just going to give you another definition, one of these Hegelisms. When he uses the word spirit, I told you before, he does mean consciousness, but he actually means something a little bit more specific, and I've sort of toyed this out. That when he uses the word consciousness, he's, or spirit rather, he's talking about consciousness, but in a state of alienation from itself. So that's weird and hard to understand, but you know what, I, what I'm getting at here is before consciousness becomes self-conscious, you know, before it becomes aware of what it is um, itself. And I've, I've used this, I've tried to make this distinction before when I talked about kind of the difference between my understanding of consciousness and self-consciousness. If you guys remember, I talked about like an animal. If you can imagine like a dog or a cat or something that's responding to its instincts. And it's aware, it's alive, I mean, it's aware, it's, it's conscious, but it, it's probably not aware of its awareness. It's probably not self-conscious. You know, it's alive and aware, and it's responding to its instincts. But that's all it can do. It can't be introspective. It can't think about itself like that and wonder, you know, why it is that I am the way I am. Why is it that I'm thinking the things I'm thinking and doing the things I'm doing? An animal doesn't quite have that. And I think that's probably a good analogy to the way Hegel's describing spirit. So you can, you can sort of think about spirit as something like consciousness and self-consciousness being something different, something higher, something a little bit closer to the divine, something like that, or maybe something a little harder to understand. Maybe that, maybe we could leave it there. So having given you that definition, um, the distinction between spirit and consciousness, Hegel does, like I say, in the last bit of phenomenology of spirit, he does give what sounds like a cosmology or a theogony. These are stories that, these are ancient stories that come from all sorts of cultures that talk about how we, we came to be and how the cosmos came to be. Um, creation myths, like I said. And there's something like that that comes, that comes to the surface when you're reading the end of Phenomenology of Spirit. Hegel talks about religion. He starts talking about religion explicitly, which he really hadn't done before. He was talking mostly about consciousness and self-consciousness and being really abstract. So here he starts talking about religion in some interesting ways, and then he describes this process of self-consciousness. He describes how he imagines it unfolds. And so the story that's being told about consciousness or self-consciousness unfolding, it sounds a lot like an ancient myth about the, the cosmos being created. It's like creation is unfolding, right? In the Bible, it's... It, goes over a six-day period. It's unfolding. And there's this weird connection between the way Hegel describes the process of self-consciousness and this connection to the way that, that myths talk about creation unfolding. There's some parallels there that were super obvious to me. When I'm reading it, I'm like, okay, Hegel was telling us his own creation myth. So that's what I want to kind of focus on. That'll be the latter half of this podcast today is Hegel's creation myth. 
Again, him trying to explain the process of self-consciousness. And what comes out of his mouth is something like how the universe was created. It's really interesting. Um, it's interesting for lot, lots of reasons. There's a couple things I wanted to bring up in the beginning here. Um, one of them comes from this book I read, and I'm struggling to remember the name. It had two authors. It was an academic book. It was talking about the origins of the world's mythologies. That might have been the title of the book, actually. I'm looking around for it now to see if I can find it. Uh, whatever. Um, I'll, give, I'll, I'll get it for you guys later. But in any case, these two, these two um, like Ivy League academics, they were studying you know, mythology and language. And what they did was they, they sort of talked about the, the f- commonalities between myths, the most ancient myths all across the world. And what they tried to do was to reconstruct the original creation myth that human beings came up with, the original one. So if that existed, if there was one, let's say, and it didn't, it didn't, you know, pop up, you know, uh, different places in, in different times, if it can really be rolled back to one story, that story goes back hundreds of thousands of years, um, you know, comes out of Africa somewhere before human beings even left Africa. You know, it, it, this must have been a very, very ancient story. So you can imagine it's probably pretty difficult to reconstruct that story. But these guys gave it their best, their best shot. And they talk about it as uh, there's basically two branches of mythology, and one of them they call uh, Ganwandan, and and that's a word, Ganwanda, is a word that, that's used for um, the, well, the culture in Africa before human beings spread out all over Africa, certainly before they spread out all over the um, uh, the world, and um, and so they kind of group together these myths that are like pre Diaspora. So before human beings left Africa, went all over the world, there's a group of myths that sort of are related. And, and, and then there's a sort of a different type of story that gets told after human beings leave Africa. And so there's a different type of story, that, uh, groups of stories that, that they uh, kind of group together from that point on. And the Ganwandan mythology, according to these two authors, is the primordial story. If you take a look at those myths and you see what they have in common, maybe you can piece together this original creation story. Something like that. And that's really, really cool as an idea to even try. And you might think, you might think that that's weird. Um, maybe that that's impossible. You know, history doesn't go back far enough and how, you're just going to be guessing. And how, how, could you, how could you have any idea of if you're on to something? You know, it seems impossible. But scientists have done that with languages. You know, we talked about the Proto-Indo-European language before. Um, that's just sort of a make-believe word, Proto-Indo-European. We have no idea if people spoke a language like that. All we know is that there's a whole bunch of ancient languages that have lots of similarities and probably came from a single language or a single set of languages at an earlier time. And they've used that information to sort of piece together what the original roots of these words would have been to kind of roll it back in time as much as they can to come up with something that would have been like that original language. And um, they've done that beyond just Proto-Indo-European. They've done that for the world. They've tried to do that for all of the world's languages. So I mean, you'd be going back 
over a million years probably in history. I don't know how, when, when you know, complex language actually emerged, but th- there are scientists that do things like this. So it's not coming out of, the, out of you know, left field that these guys were trying to come up with like a, a reconstituted original creation myth. In fact, one of my favorite academics, Jordan Peterson, he did that himself. He did it in his first book, Maps of Meaning, where he basically said, look, here's some of the most ancient creation stories, some of the most ancient myths, and here's what they have in common. And then he kind of recreates his own story, kind of like Hegel's going to do today, where he tries to sort of summarize and capture all the stuff that's critical and important that appears in all these different ancient stories um, so that you can see where these commonalities were and you can try to recreate the story where those ancient stories came from, something like that. And Jordan does a great job of that. He, you know, he talks about, um, he talks about, you know, the hero story. That he talks about the conscious creature that has an encounter with chaos, that has to, um, that ha- has a challenge there, that has to learn to tame chaos to to create something generative and useful out of it. And maybe that's you know bringing back the Holy Grail, bringing back the you know the Virgin, you know whatever the treasure is from all these mythological stories. That that. It's something like that. Like th- there's an outline that seems to be used over and over and over again, and and that's the idea is that you're reconstituting this outline. And the more information we have, the more historical information we have, um, you know, the more the more time we've had to kind of think about these problems and these things. The the more this recreation changes, you know, maybe it becomes a little bit more refined, and Hegel's done that. Um, in an interesting way. So without further ado, that's what you're going to get today. Let's get into this. All right, so this first opening segment I'm going to call Where Does Religion Come From? And Hegel's going to try to answer that question. And quote number one reads like this. The conception of religion is established in self-consciousness, which is conscious of being all truth, and which contains all reality within that truth. Hmm. Interesting. So the beginning part of this, the conception of religion is established in self-consciousness. Let's just take that that bit in the beginning. So even as a concept, even as an idea, religion doesn't exist outside of self-consciousness. According to Hegel, there's something about the experience of being self-conscious that allows for the idea of religion to emerge. You're not going to even come up with this idea of, uh, you know, an absolute being, of, you know, divinity, of supernatural powers. You're not going to come up with anything like that uh, until you become self-conscious. So there's something about being self-conscious that allows the idea of religion to come about. There's some connection between the two. And that's interesting. So what is that connection? And Hegel says... It's conscious of being all truth, and which contains all reality within that truth. He's talking about self-consciousness, so what does he mean by that? So this is something like, it's hard to explain, um, it's something like, it's something like recognizing the mystery of experience. So we're all conscious creatures, and that means, you know, some things. But one of the things it means for sure is that we're having experiences. And there's a mystery to that. 
there's in fact still to this day a mystery to that you know the cognitive psychologists and the cognitive theorists of all sorts can can tell you very little about experience about conscious experience very very little so there's a mystery about that but we all have experience we all have this self-consciousness we, we can reflect on our own experiences and so it seems to us that our lives are contained somehow in our experiences or or our memories of our experiences right so what the world is to us are the things that we've done the experiences that we've had either the ones we're having now or the ones we've had before so there's something like like our world for lack of a better word exists in our experience or in our, the memories of our experiences. So in a manner of speaking, um, th- the world begins with you and I. I mean, if you, if you ask us, it's like we were, we were born, we open our eyes, and maybe even for, for us today, it's more like think about what your earliest memory is. Kind of that's where the world begins, you know? It's in our experience. And outside of our experience, there's nothing. You know? So it's like the world, the cosmos, is contained in our experience. So that's kind of what he's getting at. It's like we intuit ourselves to be self-created and to be eternal. And if you're raising your eyebrows and you're saying, you know, that's a step too far, Chris, think about it. You have no memory of being created. You've always been here as far as you're concerned. The world has only existed as far as you've existed. That's how we feel, even if we don't admit it to ourselves. The world began the moment I can remember the world. That's when it began. And also, I have really no context of the world ceasing to be after I do. It's not exactly important. I'm not going to be around to, to, to experience it. But as far as we're concerned, we're eternal. And if I die, there's going to be other conscious creatures that are going to continue the experience that we're having. The experience doesn't stop. So that's how we consider ourselves, or we intuit ourselves to be self-created and eternal. That's just how it seems to be. That's how we seem to be. And so we explain this feeling by generating fantasies of the self-created and the eternal. Of God, Right? So this is and has always been a means of understanding who and what we are. Isn't that weird? We're trying to understand what it means for ourselves to be conscious. And that exercise leads us to believe in a God. It it leads us to create, to fantasize about something that is self-created and eternal, the same way that we consider our consciousness to be. Isn't that weird? There's a connection there's a there's a connection that that brings about religion you know it brings about religion and the idea of god trying to understand who and what we are and this is what hegel means when he says look religion begins in self-consciousness it's an explanation for how our consciousness seems to be what he calls the be- being all truth and containing all reality yes that's exactly what our consciousness seems to be and from there, we come up with ideas about God. All right, Hegel goes on. He says, It is by the determinate character in which spirit knows itself that one religion is distinguished from another. 
Okay, that's also very interesting. So, so in the beginning, he, he's talking about the phenomenon of being self-conscious and trying to understand what that means, and, and in that process, coming up with the idea of God. And in this next quote, he's saying the differences in between how different religions characterize God, that, that has something to do with our identity with God. It has something to do with the way we paint God to be. You know, the image, the fantasy image that we come up with when we're trying to understand ourselves. What does that look like? Well, it's going to be different for me and for you. Certainly going to be different from someone who lived 100,000 years ago or someone who lives in, you know, some far-flung part of the world than it it would be for my own. Hegel says that is what distinguishes one religion from another. We're all trying to understand what it is we are. And we're all conscious. We're all the same thing. We're all trying to understand the same thing. And each of us comes up with a slightly different idea, and a slightly different religion is born. It makes perfect sense. It makes perfect sense to me. The, the interesting idea is like, you know, the way that we conceptualize God determines how we understand ourselves. That's interesting. Because again, there's this fundamental connection between ourselves and God, between our identity and God's identity, between how we understand ourselves and how we understand God, that those things are connected, like Hegel says, because the idea of self-consciousness generates the idea of God. And we're self-conscious. We, can, we can't help but generate this idea. And we're all doing that. And our, all of our ideas are not going to be identical. And so there you have all the different religions in the world. It's amazing. So, so how we understand God determines how we understand ourselves. Um, and what we are seems to be in our relationship to God. What we are seems to be in our relationship to God. So whether we're talking about animism, um, polytheism, um, monotheism, or, or monism, all different types of religions, what type of religion emerges depends on how we see our place in relationship to God. So let me give you some examples. In animism, you've got something like, these are like spirit religions. You can think about Native Americans, you can think about sub-Saharan African tribes or Australian Aboriginal religions, you know, nature religions. Think about that. These are people that, that believe that the divine is a spiritual energy that flows through all things. So if I'm an if I believe in that sort of religion, to me, if God is a spiritual energy that flows through all things, what am I? I am a manifestation of that energy. That's what I am. But what if I'm a polytheist? What if I believe in all sorts of different gods? Not just a spiritual energy that flows through all things, but a bunch of distinct gods, spiritual forces that exist. So polytheism is like understanding the divine existing in many forms within yourself and outside of yourself, external in the world of matter. So what am I in that world? I am intertwined with many different spirits. That's what I am. What about monotheism? So monotheism believes that the divine exists in one eternal form, but that form is separate from the world of matter. God is some is somehow apart from everything else. He created everything and somehow stands outside of it. That's how what we think of when we try to understand monotheism. So what am I in that world? 
Well, I'm something that's eternally separated from God. That, that doesn't seem right. What about monism? That, that, that's the belief that the divine is, is, is everything actual and potential simultaneously. So what am I in that world? I am God in that world. So all of these different ways of understanding God, it forces you to put yourself in relationship to God. And the way you understand God changes how you understand yourself. And I think that's interesting. And I think it explains a lot about how religions develop and how and why people have conflict over religion. But the most important thing about it, the most interesting thing about it, is this strange connection between our own sense of ourself and this idea of God. It's like we can't, we can't identify exactly or understand exactly what we are without coming up with this idea of God and trying to understand ourselves in relationship to that idea. That is very, very weird. But it's right up Hegel's alley, right? It's connected to this idea of self-consciousness, of consciousness of consciousness. So let's get in. Let's get in a little deeper. Hegel says, The actual spirit is constituted after the same manner in which spirit beholds itself in religion. The actual spirit is constituted after the same manner in which spirit beholds itself in religion. So that's something very much like what we just said, but it kind of seems like the other way around a little bit. It kind of seems like what he's saying here is that the idea of God is dependent on our understanding of ourselves. So he says the sty- the manner in which spirit beholds itself in religion. Well, what's religion? It's how human beings understand God. So we're coming up with that model. And God ha- and we're making God fit into that model. So this is what I wonder. I wonder if the the form or the manner in which spirit beholds itself, if that's something like what Jordan Peterson talks about when he talks about the ideal. Jordan says that the ideal is a judge, right? Because if you have something that you want to be or you want to accomplish and you're falling short of it, that it... Every time you think about what what it is you want and desire, that want or desire is a judge. It's saying, you still aren't good enough. You haven't reached the ideal yet. You're failing. You're failing. And this is, in Jordan's mind, this is why people avoid um, ever even asking themselves what they want or what their goals are. Because they don't want that judge, you know, leering over them, making them feel bad. And this this is kind of what I have in mind. The ideal that human beings come up with, because that seems pretty, pretty related to the idea of God. You know, even I can't remember who it was, one of the um, early church fathers, who said uh, that God is that which is the idea which nothing greater can be conceived. Something like that. It's the highest good. That's what God is, right? Something like that. And you can understand it that way. But that sort of makes God an ideal, and an ideal's judge. It's like. The highest good we can devise, we elevate that to the level of a god, or, or of God. And that constitutes a judge to us all. And of course, God represents that, that, that judgmental figure in religion. 
you know, the, the, the spirit, the, the power that's going to judge your deeds and determine what your afterlife is going to be like. You know, that's a really common theme in religion. So is this how our sense of self and identity is tied to our conception of God? Something like, we can only rise as high as we've placed our ideal. So we come up with the idea of God, however, however we see fit, and that becomes the highest rung in the ladder that we can climb to. And once we reach that height, once we reach that ideal, then we need a new conceptualization of God. We need, we need to come up with something new in our fantasy that we can transform God into so that we can change our ideal. And whenever we do that, we have a new judge, we have a new goal, and that pushes ourselves on to the next level, whatever that might be. It's transforming ourselves. So let me put that in a different way. It's like the, more, the higher, the more abstract we, we formulate the idea of God, the higher that goal we, we create for ourselves. So by transforming God and the idea of God into something greater, we transform ourselves into something greater. And so here you can see, again, the connection between what God can become and what man can become. It's not just our identity that's connected to the idea of God. It's our potential. It's amazing and strange. All right, Hegel. So now that we've done that, I'm going to move into section two, which I'm going to call Hegel's creation myth. I'm going to do my best to paint this picture for you, but we're going to go through this and uh, we're going to go through this quote by quote. And I've kept them mostly, um, mostly in order as they appear in uh, in phenomenology of spirit. So here we go. Hegel begins. He says, "There is a consciousness of objective existence, but the supersinuous, the ex- the eternal." or whatever we care to call it, is devoid of selfhood. It is merely something universal. Okay. So he says there is a consciousness of objective existence. So generally, when we think about consciousness, we're we're not thinking about objective existence. We're thinking about subjective existence. We're thinking about what it's like to be us. You know? There's a certain way. It's what it's like to be me is different than what it's like to be you. That's subjective, the way I see things, right? That's subjective. What, what Hegel's saying is, no, there's a consciousness of objective existence. And then he says, it's super sensuous. That means it's above your sensations. It's not about what you see and taste and touch and hear. It's above that. He says it's eternal, or whatever you care to call it, but it's devoid of selfhood. It's merely something universal. So whatever this consciousness is of objective existence, it's not like your consciousness or my consciousness. It doesn't have a self attached to it. He says it's merely something universal. So there's not a lot of meaning there, not a lot of substance there, but there is. It's really interesting. It reminds me of something I've, uh, something I've said before when I'm trying to understand objective reality. I say it's the, it's the Terminator 2 liquid metal substance. You know, it's, it can become anything. It's like potential. It's the ones and zeros from the Matrix movies. It's the scaffolding of reality. 
It's whatever it is that material reality can be built on or, or over, laid over, something like that. It's potential. But there's no subject or object yet. So that if you can imagine, what Hegel's trying to say is that where, where this story begins, in the beginning, it's, it's consciousness that doesn't yet have a subject or an object. It's just merely something universal. Whatever that means. It sort of sounds like something, like something potential. All right, Hegel goes on. He says, Spirit is the process from its immediacy to the attainment of knowledge of what it immediately is. It is the process in which it appears as an object for its own consciousness, where it will behold itself as it is. Now, there's a lot in this little sentence, so let me start from the beginning. He says, spirit is the process, which I think already is amazing. It's to understand consciousness as a process. So that's very different from the way people tend to think about at least the idea of God. You know, God is usually understood to be a person, a personage of some kind. You know, to have a will of its own, to have a, uh, an identity of its own, you know, something like that. But Hegel says no. He says it's a process. It's something more like a back and forth. It's something more like a mechanical process of some kind. What does he mean by that? Now, I, I think that's something very true. That comes from mystic intuition. In me, it resonates as very true, and I have my own understanding of what that process is. But Hegel does as well, and he says, it's the process from its immediacy to the attainment of knowledge of what it immediately is. What in the Sam hell is he saying? Okay, so when he says the process from its immediacy, immediacy is a word that he's using. It's like it's like eminence that we talked about before. It's what's immediately present to you. Awareness, consciousness. It's immediate. It's the it's the here and now. It exists. You know, it, it, it like we were saying earlier. It sort of captures everything that you that that you understand about existence and reality, and the, your whole world is sort of captured in your experience of it. So it, that's what he means by immediacy. It's like consciousness is aware. And what it's aware of is its own awareness. It's immediately, you know, aware of itself. That's what consciousness is. It's imminence. Okay, so he says it's a process from that, from just existing, from being conscious, to the attainment of knowledge of what it is. So it's one thing to be aware, you know, of your awareness. It's quite another thing to understand anything at all about what that awareness is. Right? You and I are conscious creatures. Do we understand anything at all about what it is about what consciousness is? We're, we experience it, we live it, we embody it. We can we can wax poetic about it all day long, but can we say anything certain about what consciousness is? No. Not in any rational, objective, scientific way. No. And yet we have knowledge. We have knowledge of the world, we have knowledge of ourselves. How does that happen? How do you go from just being awareness to having knowledge of that awareness? That's a mysterious thing. It reminds me of sitting in the float tank. I've told you this story before, but sitting in the float tank in the pure black darkness 
without any sensation of my of my body at all, floating in that water, room temperature, um, you know, perfectly quiet, perfectly dark, no sensations whatsoever. And in that darkness, I tried to imagine what consciousness was in the absence of any sort of sense experience. What is it? What am I floating in that tank if I'm not experiencing anything? And what I found is that I was always experiencing, even when there was nothing to experience. What I was experiencing was my own awareness. I was experiencing my own experiencing, something like that. So it was an amazingly it was an amazing experience actually. It was an amazing realization to have. It's like one of those things that's so obvious that you, it never even occurs to you. And then once it does, you're like, man, that makes a lot of sense. And it's not it's no surprise. And it's rocking my world right now. And that's what happened. So so how do you start from there, from that you know, awareness of your awareness to having any knowledge at all? How do you do that? As Hegel says, how, do you, how does it behold itself as it is? So we're going, to get, we're going to get to it here. But this idea of immediacy or imminence, attaining knowledge of itself, through some kind of action, through some kind of transformation, as, as Hegel said earlier, it's by becoming the object of its own subject. And it does it, it, does it by separating itself from itself. It's really hard to understand what that means, and I'm not sure Hegel knows exactly either. But it, it does so by separating itself from itself, so that it exists as opposites exist, seemingly separate, but mutually coexisting. So just imagine, if you could separate yourself from yourself, then you could finally experience this other thing that exists. And what that other thing is, is you. All you've done is separated yourself from yourself. So now you've got one self on one side, one self on the other. Now you can look at that other self. You can touch it. You can hold it. You can, you can experience it. You can get knowledge about what it is. And what, it, what is it that it, it's experiencing? Is you. So again, I don't know what this idea of separating itself from itself means. It's a very metaphysical idea. It's, it, there's not a lot of substance to it and but the idea is that something about that it's happening it's happening in a way that's impossible for us to understand because it's happening in something like non-being you know it's happening within god it, that, that's something that as hegel's going to tell us that we're sort of we're sort of always separated from so we're going to talk more about that separation um before i do i want to talk about this, the, Hegel's notion here that there's a state in which consciousness becomes its own object. Because it reminds me, it reminds me of another mystic experience. It's not at all unlike the one that I just described in the float tank. Um, this is one that um, I would classify as deeply, deeply mystical. And I, I said this on the last podcast, so forgive me for repeating it, but the experience that I had was of myself existing in total darkness, so not at all unlike that float tank. There's no experiences to be had. There's no sensation to be had. It's just awareness. But the thing that I had awareness of, which is a little different from the float tank, it's not like I had awareness of my own awareness. What I had in this mystic experience was awareness of a thought that it seemed to sound like a question that was audible, but I think it was more like 
in my head. It was more like a thought that kept occurring to me over and over and over. It started like, what is this? Like, this was the question. I'm having this experience. I don't know what I am or what this experience is. So it, the thought I'm having is, what is this? What is this? And then after a while, the question becomes, what am I? Because I sort of notice, and, I, and, I, and this is all happening subconsciously. I didn't notice that I noticed. But what happened is I noticed that there was something wondering the question. And that, that something was me. So it wasn't just, what is this experience? It became, what am I? And so there's this conflation. There's not, it's not exactly clear that there's a difference between me asking, what is this? And me asking, what am I? It's like those questions are the same questions. Which is interesting because Hegel talks about, you know, being self-conscious is like being both subject and object simultaneously. And if I was subject, I would be saying, what am I? And if I'm object, I'd be saying, what is this? And that's exactly what happened in this experience. I'm, I'm, I'm wondering, what is this? What is this? What am I? What am I? And it just keeps building and building. The question keeps getting more powerful as though I'm, as though I'm trying harder to find the answer, maybe, something like that. And it builds and it builds and it gets more determined and it gets desperate. So I'm trying to discover or understand what I am or what, what experience is. And it just keeps building to this crescendo and then right when I feel like I can't take it anymore and it's going to explode, I open up my eyes and bang, I have my answer. You know, I open up my eyes and I can see the world, the ordinary world around me. And I know, I had this intuition, that is my answer. The question, what is this? What am I? I'm trying to figure out what consciousness is. And I open up my eyes and I see the cosmos. I see my experience of the world. And that is the answer of what I am and what this is. So I experienced the answer to my question. It's not like I was given the answers. Like somebody told me the answers. I experienced the answers, which is a, it's, it's a strange thing. It's a strange way of putting it, but it's important. It's like, that's how I got my answer, through experience. So it's significant that that ordinary being, you know, my subjective experience, was revealed to me as the answer. But perhaps more significant that the answer was experienced. And further still that the answer was the same to both questions. What is this and what am I? Consciousness. So the answer was not realized or discerned. It was experienced. I think that's important. It wasn't something that I discerned. It wasn't an epiphany. It was, it, it was something that was immediately the answer right in front of me. I couldn't avoid it. My experience was the answer. So something about experience is absolutely key. It's something more like the way religion will use the word revelation. So there's a connection here, in my mind, between, the ex between having experience, any kind of ordinary experience, and the way that religious people will talk about getting messages from God as a revelation, that, that those two things really aren't different things. And Hegel will say the same thing a little bit later in the book um, when he says that consciousness quote, beholds itself in the form of being. Consciousness beholds itself in the form of being. 
It's like God wants to wants to experience itself. And when it finally does, when it when it pulls back that veil and looks in the mirror, what it sees is the cosmos and you and I and everything in it. Something like that. It's a very mystical thing for Hegel to say. All right, he goes on. He says, The immediate unity of spirit with itself is pure consciousness, inside which it breaks up into its constituent elements. What it produces in the course of this process are its forms and patterns as spirits, which together constitute all that it can reveal when it is completely manifested. So there's a lot there too. But the first bit here says that there's an immediate unity of spirit with itself and that that is called consciousness. He said inside consciousness, it breaks itself up into constituent elements and those are its forms and patterns. So that should all probably sound as clear as mud, but it might also remind you of Carl Jung. You know, Carl Jung even uses the same words, patterns, when he talks about the archetypes. It's like you've got these unconscious patterns that exist, that you're, that you're, you know, thinking, the process of your thinking relies on, and that your fantasy generation relies on. Um, the, the, these, these forms and patterns of consciousness, he calls them archetypes. And Heigl's talking about, you know, he's using the same words, it's interesting. But more interesting to me is the way Hegel paints this picture because he's saying that there's a unity of spirit with itself. Remember, spirit is consciousness that hasn't realized its consciousness, something like that. So you can imagine if, if consciousness is united with itself, then it's become something he's calling pure consciousness. And inside this thing, it's breaking apart into all these individual elements. So in my mind, I've got this... This unity, spirit united with spirit, it's like an egg. And inside that egg, it's breaking up into all these constituent elements. What does that remind you of? What does that visual remind you of? It reminds me of a very old myth that we talked about many times, specifically with the Maps of Meaning lectures. We're talking about the Babylonian creation myth. Perhaps the oldest myth we have in, in written form. And it talks about the world beginning with Marduk and Apsu together. Marduk and Apsu are opposites, a god and a goddess united together in, in this egg, this cosmic egg that Jordan calls the Ouroboros. And what happens when Marduk and Apsu are together, so you can imagine a male god and a female god together, they're in, they're in this creative sort of sexual union. And so what's happening within this cosmic egg is Marduk and Apsu are just having babies. They're just creating things. And so the egg gets filled with these spirits that are being created by the sexual union of Marduk and Apsu. All these new things are being born within this cosmic egg. And that's very much what Hegel's talking about when he says spirit together in one and one whole is just breaking up into these constituent elements within itself. This is the, this is the myth of Marduk and Apsu you know, creating all of these spirits within themselves. And what that does is it, it takes the substance of Marduk and Apsu and it breaks them up. You know, it, it breaks them up and, and separates them from themselves. And so that separation is what makes consciousness possible. It's what makes self-consciousness possible. So if Marduk and Apsu are always together, they're always one thing. 
until they've been separated. Marduk and Apsu cannot know each other as themselves. They can't know, Marduk can't know Apsu and Apsu can't, can't know Marduk because they're together. They're one thing. They need to be separated in order to know one another, in order to, have, in order to experience what it is they are. So this is how it's tied to the idea of self-consciousness in Hegel's mind. And I just thought the parallels between this ancient creation myth and the way Hegel spells it out is eerily similar. You know, he studied religion. I, I, you know, the likelihood that he came across this myth is probably pretty good. Maybe he saw the same parallels I saw, and he and he kind of borrowed this pattern to make his own his own story. But you can see how closely related that is. Now, this last sentence I disagree with, so I want to tell you why. When he says here that um, he says talking about the forms and patterns that get created within consciousness, he said together that they constitute all that it can reveal when it is completely manifested. So the idea is that consciousness is the potential to have all of these different forms and patterns manifest, brought into the material world. You know, it's potential for new, new things to be born, to come into being. And he says that, 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 that that's a potential that can be completely manifested. I, I, I disagree. I don't think consciousness or God can ever be completely manifested. I, th- I think this goes back to what he's what he earlier called a process. So I believe it accords better with the idea of God, that being is an infinite process of unfolding. And, and Hegel says as much when he said spirit seeking to know itself as a process. That's what, that's what he means. It's, an, it's a continual, eternal process process of coming to understand it's 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 never over you know that's why god is 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 generally thought to be eternal because that process is never it's, it's eternal it's never over god never becomes completely manifest the world is never done evolving it's it's always continuing to move and transform so that's the that's the small issue i'm going to take with hegel on that and then he goes on he says He says, all its particular aspects, he's talking about consciousness uh, here, all its particular aspects take into themselves and receive the character of the whole. This spirit is the true reality, the independent self-subsistence which belongs to each individuality. Its consciousness and its self-consciousness are harmonized. All right, so truth be told, I'm not sure I can uh, unravel that entire that entire sentence that makes sense for you, but I, th- I think it's important for a couple reasons. So when he's now talking about consciousness creating within itself or separating out within itself all of these particular things, all of these new things, these are particular things. It's no longer like consciousness, this universal thing. You know, that's where we began with this consciousness of, ob- of objective reality, this universal thing. That's not what we're talking about now. We're talking about these particular things that are being born within consciousness. And he says, each of those particular things take on the character of the whole. And so this is a very fractal picture. This is the idea that every, every piece of God contains within it all of God. So it's a pattern within a pattern, you know. God is the same on the macro level and on the micro level. Um, 
you know, God is a macro being and all the individual things that make that make up the body of God, let's say, all of those things are also the completeness of God. And if you zoom in, let's say, I don't know if that's the right word, but if you zoom in on those components, you would see that they're also made up of components. And those components are the wholeness of God, that it goes on and on forever. It's this fractal picture that comes up, and it comes up in mystic intuition. It comes up in psychedelic experience. It comes up in shamanism. And here, Hegel brings it up in, in the philosophy of self-consciousness. I mean, I mean, I, I love it. Uh, it's, it's interesting to see him go there, but, uh, but also it's buried in the language that makes it hard to understand what he means. When he says that consciousness's particular aspects take into themselves and receive the character of the whole, that's what he's saying. He's saying all of these individual things that get broken up and separated within consciousness, all of them are themselves the wholeness of consciousness. God within God within God, something like that. And he says, this spirit is the true reality which belongs to each individuality. Its consciousness and its self-consciousness are harmonized. And this has something to do with the idea of Consciousness is object and consciousness is subject, which is kind of where Hegel begins this whole this whole book, trying to understand our experiences of ourself, our self-conscious experience, that we experience ourselves to be both our own subject and our own object. And he's saying here that consciousness and its self-consciousness are harmonized. So there's a there's a link between understanding yourself as subject and object, understanding yourself as God and being. And that they're in harmony. You know, that there's somehow a whole in some sort of harmony. In, in, in interaction with each other, they make up some sort of a whole. And that's, that's also a very mystical thing to say. He goes on, he says, This process is the development of its actual reality through the individual aspects thereof. The development of its actual reality. So consciousness develops its actual reality by having these individual particular aspects that it's created. So there's something there that says God all by itself, you know, not broken up into these, you know, particular individual things. It doesn't have an actual reality. And you can understand that if you, th- if you think actual to mean material, when you, when you think of that to mean being, you know, the, the world all around us, that God doesn't have that kind of reality. But Hegel's not saying that consciousness doesn't have a type of reality. It, it seems to have a reality apart from what he's calling actual reality. And that's sort of a dualistic thing to say. It's like saying that, that God exists, you know, as God and separately as being. You know, like in two different dimensions, something like that. It, it exists in non-being and in being. So, something like that. And he goes on, he says, When the first cleavage is made within spirit, it beholds itself in the form of being. Its being is filled with the content of spirit. All right. This, this might be the most important sentence, uh, at least to help illustrate this idea to me. He says, when the first cleavage is made within spirit, so this is when consciousness splits the first time, when it divides within itself, it separates itself from itself, whatever that means. When it does that, it says, when the first cleavage is made, spirit beholds itself in the form of being. So imagine, 
Imagine God is one thing. There's only one thing. So there's nothing to experience. There's only God. If God can then separate itself within itself, whatever that means, God, God is one, somehow becomes two. Now it can actually interact with itself. It can touch it. It can prod it. It can taste it. It can figure out what it is. I know those aren't the greatest analogies. You know, we're talking about God here. It probably doesn't have a taste. But you get, you get what I'm saying. Once that first cleavage is made within spirit, what the one side can, can recognize the other. Now it's possible to have information, to have knowledge of what it is. So I just love that. When the first cleavage is made within spirit, it beholds itself in the form of being. And so that's also important. It's that when consciousness finally separates and can look upon itself, what it sees is being. Okay? That's not some ethereal, you know, image of God. That's not, you know, floating floating Zeus man on the cloud with the, with the white beard. That's not, uh, you know any of those ideas about what God what God is. It's the material cosmos. It's being. That's what it is. Whew, buddy. I like that. And then he says, spirit knowing spirit is consciousness of itself. So that's what self-consciousness is to Hegel. Spirit knowing spirit. Consciousness knowing consciousness. Yes, I get you. I'm with you. I'm following you. He says, the distinction which it gives itself grows into and assumes the diverse forms of nature. Okay, so this is piggybacking on that idea that when the first cleavage is made, that God can, God can behold itself in the form of being. He's saying that that distinction, that cleavage, which it gives itself, grows and assumes more diverse forms. So in a nutshell, once consciousness is able to speak to divide itself, to split up into two things, or to separate itself from itself, whatever that means, once it does that, it's like a snowball effect, you know? It just keeps happening. The divisions just keep happening and happening and happening. So it's like we've, he, we've kicked off this chain reaction. This is something I talked about in an earlier podcast I called, I called the being generator, which is another idea that came to me in mystic intuition. It's very much like what Hegel's talking about, that once consciousness can 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 separate itself from itself whatever that means that that kicks off a process of continual division and division and division so one thing gets split up into opposites and those things get split up into opposites further and further and on and on and on it goes it just creates this cavalcade of division and newness this is what's happening and he calls that all of the diverse forms of nature Hegel says, the state of being involves substance, which rises without descending into its, itself to become subject and securely firmly, <clears throat> excuse me, and to secure firm, firmly its distinctions through the self. Its determinations are merely attributes, which do not succeed in attaining independence. They remain merely names of the one. They are merely messengers of its mighty power claiming no will of their own. So uh, this is messy, but it's interesting. So you just keep this picture in your mind of this, uh, of this egg that's dividing and dividing and dividing within itself, creating all these differences. He's saying that those differences, they rise without descending into, into itself. So, it's, uh, so imagine 
all, every time consciousness separates and creates something new out of itself, that new thing exists. But it doesn't know where it came from. It doesn't know that it's God, right? So a new, a new baby's born, right? It doesn't, it doesn't know, you know, according to, according to me anyway, that it's God. It doesn't know. It's, it's ignorant of that. And, but Hegel would say he's not talking here specifically about a person. You might say every one of those divisions within consciousness represents something like forces of nature, you know, different type, the, the creation of different types of fundamental particles, you know, of energy, of interactions. You know, you can think about it on a very physical level. And all of those things are sort of requisites um, to to create the things that, that exist, you know, in different combinations. Um, so I'm jumping too far ahead of myself. So let me rein myself back in a little bit here. So they haven't. So that they've risen. They've 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 come into existence, but they haven't they haven't recognized where they came from or what they really are. So what you end up having is this multiplicity of things that 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 are given rise to, that come into the world, that are all different. They're all, you know, coming from the same source, but don't understand that they are. And he describes that by saying, um, they do not succeed in attaining independence. They remain merely names of the one. That's a beautiful and mystical thing to say. It's like everything that exists um, are, are different names for the one. You know, they're different representations of God. And they're all different, and they're all the same. And they don't know that they're the same. They don't know that they all came from God, that they all are God. And it's interesting, Hegel uses this religious language when he says they are merely messengers of its mighty power. I mean, that's like something you would hear, you know, in a holy book, claiming no will of their own. And it's almost like he's predicting what will have to happen, you know, that these things that have been separated from God that come into existence and don't know what they are, that they will have to eventually claim a will of their own. What that means is unclear, but it will get clear. Okay, he says, self-conscious spirit passing away from abstract, formless essence and going into itself makes its unity assume the character of a a manifold of entities existing by themselves. So this is another explanation of what we just talked about. So the formless essence going into itself. So this is consciousness within consciousness. It says it makes its unity assume the character of manifold entities existing by themselves. It makes its unity, God is one thing, assume the character of many things existing all by themselves. It's amazing. It's amazing. So you have God in unity who understands that it's God creating all of these things within itself. Those things now have consciousness of their own, but they don't know they're God. They're, they're estranged from their own identity. They're, they, they think that they're different things, but they're not. Something like that. It's, it's amazing. It's all of the multiplicity of the world ex- existing seemingly all by themselves, ex- estranged from the truth. That they're, that they're really a unity of consciousness. I mean, could you imagine a more mystical thing to say? Good God. Okay. And Heigl says something interesting here. He says, Producing itself as object is an instinctive kind of working, like bees building their cells. 
So this is, this is something that gets to the heart of this process idea. It's really interesting. So he's talking about consciousness separating within itself to, to become all of these particular individual things within its own unity, within itself somehow. And he says that that process, that, that process of dividing and continuing to divide and becoming new things all the time, I mean, you can just imagine the, the cells in your body dividing and becoming, you know, more and more cells all the time, that that's something that happens instinctively. Like the working of bees building their cells. So consciousness separating itself from itself and continuing that process forever. You know, dividing and separating from itself and, and becoming new things. That, that, that that's something instinctive to consciousness. Like bees building, building their, their, their honeycombs is instinctive to a bee. It's like, it's what they do. It, so what consciousness does, what God does, is separate itself into a multiplicity of things within itself. And, and it's, it's like part of nature, the way Hegel's describing it. It's, it's instinctive. It happens all by itself. It's like a cause and effect thing, all self-contained, that goes on forever. It's really interesting because it's, there's a way you can look at that and say, well, it's kind of like a, it's kind of mechanical. It's kind of brainless. It's mindless. It's thoughtless, like the, like the bees building their cells. But at the same time, you recognize that there's a pattern behind it. You know, did you know that bees build their, their hexagon combs because that is the most efficient shape? They, they only have so much of that wax that they can, that they can create. You know, it's, it's labor intensive. There's only so much that they can create. So they find the most efficient way of putting those cells together and they come up with that shape all on their own. It doesn't sound like a mindless thing to do. You know, instincts following a pattern, you know, you can, you can, you can think of that as like running a code and it being mindless. But you can't do that without somebody writing the code. There has to be a code. There's definitely something like an intelligence behind that. And that's, you can see it as a process, but you can also see it as, a, as something as something intentional, something willful. And it's, I think it's hard to understand, but it, it hits to the very heart of this whole thing. All right, Hegel says, It must strive to give embodied shape to soul in itself and endow the body with soul. Let me read that again. Consciousness must strive to give embodied shape to soul in itself and endow the body with soul. So what this what what Hegel's saying here is that is that consciousness has to become embodied. So it creates that for itself. He says it's it's in itself. So consciousness sort of descends into itself and gives itself this different shape. This this body that it can it can exist within. It descends into itself. And that that has religious connotations. Whenever you hear that idea descending, you know, it reminds you of the myths about gods descending into the underworld, you know, or Christ descending into death before the resurrection. You know, it has sort of religious and mystical um, overtones, that idea. Um, so consciousness gives shape to itself. It sort of descends within itself so that it can inhabit it can inhabit those, those individual particular things that it's been generating within itself. 
Now, now, now consciousness can descend into itself and exist in those things. Something like that. And you can look at that like consciousness separates itself in order to experience itself. And then ever after seeks to reunite itself with itself. And that, that's the quest of religion. Trying to kind of get back to where you started. To reunite yourself with yourself. To find God might be another way of putting it. And Hegel says, the two aspects are brought closer to one another. So when he talks about the two aspects, he's talking about the separated opposites. Consciousness separates itself into opposites. That's that original division that happens, that separation. He's saying that those two aspects are brought closer together. So they're not synonymous yet, but they're closer to understanding their identity with one another. And so this is like the development of consciousness. And we're getting closer and closer to something. Uh, we don't quite know what that is yet, but it's, it's, it seems to be something like uniting itself with itself or reuniting itself with itself. Remember, it, it started off as one thing, it's separated, and now there's sort of this unconscious quest to be reunited with its, with its wholeness, with God. Okay, Hegel says, Since the aspect of a work come nearer to each other by performance of it. It also results that the work gets nearer to the self-consciousness performing it and attains in the work knowledge of itself as it truly is. All right, so we have to, we have to identify what he means by work here. But he talks about work and he talks about act um, in, in the context of consciousness. Like, what can consciousness do? What kind of work can it do? What kind of action can it take? And what he's saying is that when consciousness acts, that it comes nearer to, uh, that the two parts of consciousness come nearer to each other. So subject and object. They, they come nearer to, to each other and act in an action. So think about that like all the, all the components of an action become one in the act itself. That's how you get closer, right? So you can think about like, you know, players, rules, and a ball. They all come together to make a game, right? Matter, energy, and motion, they all come together to make the cosmos. So, so, so you can think about it like that. Um, an action bringing all of the parts together, closer together. Uh, he says, he says uh, it also results that the work gets nearer to the self-consciousness performing it and attains in the work knowledge of itself as it truly is. So you can imagine that that if you're trying to understand the players, the rules, and the ball, that you might be able to deduce that, or some of that, from the experience of the game, right? Uh, matter, energy, and motion, you might be able to kind of get at by the experience of the cosmos, right? Something like that. So it's like, it's like participating in being, existing material, materially like you and I do. And it brings you knowledge of what being is, of what you yourself are. It is as though consciousness needs itself, as God needs being, and vice versa. That they're mutually coexistent. They're opposites that make up a whole. You can't have one without the other. Hegel says, The work merely constitutes the activity of spirit 
which does not yet perceive this activity within itself. Spirit in its entirety has not yet, has not yet appeared. It is still the inner hidden essence, which is present as a whole, but broken up into self-consciousness and the object it has produced. So it's something like experience. Experience of any kind. It's, if everything is consciousness, then experience of any kind is consciousness experiencing consciousness. So I think this is what he means when he talks about the work that consciousness does. He says that work is the activity of spirit. It's what consciousness does. That's all he's saying here. Consciousness, consciousness experiences. We know that much. But within that experience, within that activity, he says, he says spirit in its entirety has not yet appeared. What he means by that is he says that the... that. He says, it is still the inner hidden essence which is present as a whole, but broken up into self-consciousness and the object it has produced. So, a subject and object haven't yet recognized that they're one and the same thing. So, this seems to be what we're building to, is coming, coming to this um, realization, coming to this recognition that consciousness, um, that, that God and, and experience really aren't different things. That subject and object really aren't different things. There's something more like, more like opposites existing in a relationship that's mutually codependent. You can't have one without the other. That they that they that they're both equally necessary. Something like that. He says self consciousness brings its forms nearer to the more universal form forms of thought. He says. The work done, even when bearing the form and shape of self-consciousness alone, is still the silent, soundless form. It shows merely an outer self, not the inner self. So what he's saying here is, is it's different for consciousness to understand itself. Like, for, for, for consciousness to recognize that God exists. It's another thing for consciousness to understand that it is God. And this is what he means when he says it, it shows merely an outer self, but not the inner self. So we understand God, but we haven't yet understood ourselves within God. We haven't yet understood, you know, our, our relationship with God. Um, and, and so there's something missing there, something that we're continuing to work towards. He says, contrasted with this outer self stands the other form, its inner being. Mm. So this is that subject-object idea. We consider ourselves to be both. You know, we're self-conscious. Um, you know, we're the subject and we're the object. But if we consider ourselves as the object, we also understand we have an inner being. We have a subject there in the object. It's like a, it's like a chicken-egg situation. Kyle and I talked about this before uh, when we were kids and we first, we first heard that uh, question, what came first, the chicken or the egg? We thought about that. We thought about that. We, we, you know, beat our heads against the wall. It was an amazing thought experiment. It gave us that first experience of just befuddlement. And then we realized, look, inside the egg is a chicken, and inside the chicken is an egg. And there's a fractal sort of geometry there. You know, you can have a, ch a chick, or excuse me, a chicken with an egg in it, and that egg has the potential for a chicken. And the chicken there has a potential for an egg. And it goes on and on and on indefinitely. And so you have an inner being and an outer being, all sort of unified within itself in this fractal sort of relationship. It doesn't get more mystical than that, you guys. 
All right, Hegel says, both representations contain the two aspects of spirit, at once in a relationship of opposition. The self both is something inward and is something outward. And both representations have that, right? So God and being, or, you know, uh, the inner self and the outer self, however you want to put that, that both representations contain an inner self and an outer self. You get the same fractal pattern repeating uh, on the macro level and on the micro level. But we see this so often when we talk about mystical topics. It's a pattern within a pattern within a pattern indefinitely. And Hegel says, both have to be united. So these are the both, both representations, the subject and the object. Both have to be united. He says, the inner being of multiform existence is still without a voice, still draws no distinctions within itself, and is still separated from its outer being, to which all distinctions belong. Okay, so both have to be united, he says. And seemingly when that happens... Um, all of those distinctions break down. And with those distinctions in place, he says that be, that our inner being is a multiform existence. So this is the multiplicity of the world existing within God. This is the image that comes to my mind. But he says it's still without a voice. And so he seems to be pointing to this idea that the objects that exist within consciousness, that consciousness keeps generating, that those things need to become subject they need to have a voice. And whose voice that is, is the voice of consciousness. It's the voice of God. It's the self-same voice. But that none of them have that voice yet. This is part of the process. That they have to come into existence. And then at some point they have to wrestle the idea of identity for themselves. And that when they do, that's something like a recognition of, the, of themselves, of their identity with God. And that's what gives them a voice. Something like that. So let's keep going. He says, Spirit has raised the shape in which it is object for its own consciousness into the form of consciousness itself. The spirit certain within itself now produces its own essential being, raised above actual reality. All right, so we, we, we should talk about that for a second. It produces its own essential being, raised above actual reality. Okay, so if you've heard the word essence before. You kind of know what we're getting at here. We're talking about that, that, that unique thing that distinguishes you from anything else. The thing that makes you what you are and not something else. That you're essential being. And for us, that's something like, like consciousness. And what he's saying here is that we, we raise that above actual reality. So you can imagine if, if by actual reality we mean the material world... And what we've done is we've taken this idea of consciousness and we've raised it above actual reality. It's not that it doesn't exist because it's not an actual reality. It's in some other reality, you know, some non-actual reality, some virtual reality, whatever you want to call it, that we've, we raise it to the idea of something that's realer than real. It's abstract. And if you've ever had a mystic experience, pe people that have psychedelic mystical experiences will often use that word, that what they experienced was realer than real. I think that cuts to the heart of this. The spirit certain within itself produces its own essential being raised above actual reality. So now, you, now you're coming closer to this idea of God. 
And Hegel even says, he even calls it the indwelling God. He says the essence of God is unity of existence and of the self-conscious spirit, which in its actuality appears confronting the former. God in its unity is existence and self-consciousness. It's being, material reality, existence, and consciousness itself. Those things together. That's what he says God is. I've said that many times. He says, um, which in its actuality appears confronting the former. I think this is super interesting. Because the idea is that existence, material reality, being, is confronting consciousness. Now, I would use the word experience, because I think that's what consciousness does. But confronting is interesting, because just try to imagine your own experience. You know, the words you're hearing now, you're sort of confronting them. And when you, you know, when you walk outside of your house, you're sort of confronting the world. And when you talk to another human being, let's say a stranger, you're confronting that person. You know, I think that there's something really true about that. That consciousness is in a constant state of confrontation. It's in a constant state of experience. And what it's experiencing is, is reality. And according to Hegel, they're not, two, they're not two different things. Reality is consciousness, and so are you. And what you're experiencing, what you're confronting constantly, is yourself. So this is what he means by, self, by self-consciousness. Experience of any kind is self-consciousness. It's amazing. And very, very mystical, Hegel. I'm with you, bud. So something like embodied consciousness confronts existence. And then he goes on, he says, The ancient gods, firstborn children of union of light and darkness, are supplanted by figures which do but darkly recall those earlier titans, which are spirits. That's interesting language. Very interesting language, because it, it sounds like he's talking about ancient mythology. He says, the ancient gods, firstborn children of the union of light and darkness, are supplanted by, by figures which do but darkly recall those earlier titans, which are spirits. So what this sounds like to me is, is that consciousness moves away from its abstract identity as primordial spirits. You know, as what he's, Hegel's calling the ancient gods, you know. And it begins to recognize those spirits as itself, you know. So it's, it's one thing to have, those, have that idea abstracted further and further and further from yourself. But it's quite another to understand them the same way as you bring them closer and closer to your own identity. When I, when I had that conversation with Daniel Torridon the other day, um, that's one thing that he and I talked about. It's like feeling that feeling that sort of blasphemous feelings that that there's some part of your, you know, I don't know what it is. There's some part of yourself that resists that idea. Um, And I don't know if that's culturally conditioned or if it's some part of it, if it's some part of this whole experience. Like a, you know, it's like um, that that's a challenge that has to be overcome or you can't understand, you can't get to the truth of any of this, you know. If you have shame like I had and uh, hubris, you know, that I was trying to, uh, you know, p- push back, that those things were keeping me from ever, from ever, from ever bringing my identity and the, and the identity of God 
you know, in harmony with each other, like Hegel, like Hegel said earlier, to ever, uh, ever say the words, I am God, uh, which I believe. And I'm, not, and I'm not saying that in a way like that excludes you or the rest of the cosmos. It doesn't. There isn't a difference, you know. But just being able to say that was such a difficult thing to say that it keeps you from ever getting there, keeps you from ever taking that, that next logical step that, that brings all this into clarity. You have to be able to do that. All right, Hegel says, Spirit, being the universal self-consciousness of everyone, holds in a single unity its objective existence and the independent self-existence of the individual units. That's interesting. So spirit being the universal self-consciousness of everyone. I I love that concept, um, by the way. Um, The idea that if you if you could experience the experience of everything that ever was or ever will be, that would be the experience of God. Something like that. And I'm not talking about just human, human beings or just animals. I'm talking about the experience of everything. The experience of chemicals re- interacting with each other. The experience of fundamental of, of atoms and fundamental particles. The experience of electric fields and magnetic fields. All of the things that interact... Imagine that they experience that in, in ways that, you know, we, you don't have to get a hold of. Just imagine some sort of experience is being had. Now imagine all of that experience that ever was, ever was from the Big Bang onwards, and all of the experience that has yet to be had, that will be had if, you know, in the infinite future. Imagine all of those experiences all at once. Now Hegel says, Consciousness holds in a single unity its objective existence and the the existence of its individual units of all of those of all of those individual consciousnesses that 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 exist within it it holds all of that in a single unity that's what god is that's what consciousness is according to hegel he says the self gives itself a consciousness of the divine being descending into it and the divine being thereby receives the actuality of self-consciousness. Amazing. The self gives itself a consciousness of the divine being descending into it. Okay, and then he says, this being descends from its universality into, into individual form, and thus combines and unites with actual reality. So this is something like, that consciousness of, of, of objective um, reality that we talked about at the very beginning, just the universal thing, whatever that is, the scaffolding of reality, that that thing descends down into itself, into those individual forms that, that, it's, that it's separated out you know, from itself, that it combines with them, it unites with actual reality. And then what you end up having is something like this. You have a... You have a realm that's that's consists of God, and within it you have a bunch of you have you have a bunch of a bunch of God, right? A bunch of different forms of God that have been separated from that unity, existing within it. And that experience that's happening within God—that's the thing that we call being. That's material reality, space and time, and everything else. This is the picture Hegel's painting, and I love it. I love it. Then he says, it is this double-sided process of canceling the abstraction of absolute being and making it something concrete and actual, and on the other hand, canceling the actual and raising it into universality. 
All right, so I'll try to make this clear. So in the first, first episode um, that we did, we talked about how Hegel kicked off this whole discussion about self-consciousness, the idea that we experience ourselves to be a subject and an object. You know, I'm the thing that's looking out and seeing the world, and I'm the thing, uh, and, I'm the, and I'm the world itself, something like that. And, um, and so you can imagine consciousness sort of flowing back and forth between the perspective of the subject and the perspective of the object. And that's something like the process that Hegel keeps alluding to. What is that process? It's something like that. It's this, it's this consciousness changing from uh, the perspective of the subject to the perspective of the object and back and forth and back and forth. And so what happens is, uh, according to Hegel, that that consciousness descends from, let's say, God into the individual things that are existing within God and back and forth and back and forth. And what it's doing is becoming universal on the God level and actual on the individual level. You know, it's becoming materially real in being and going back up and being the abstract God and back down to earth and up and down and up and down. Something like that. Something like a yo-yo. We're seeing this sort of process starting to take form, although I'm not quite sure what any of that means. This is kind of what it's, the picture is being painted. And then Hegel says, the practice of religion begins, therefore, with the offering up or surrender of a possession. Okay, so I think that's great for all sorts of reasons. But the idea that your relationship with God, so we'll call that religion, that that begins with the offering up or surrender of a possession. So if I'm God as subject and I'm, and I'm God as object, the possession that I'm giving up is the object, right? I'm giving up myself as object to become the subject. And then I'm giving up myself as subject to become the object. So there is an offering up or surrender that's involved, and that also happens to be at the heart of religious traditions. We call that sacrifice. To voluntarily offer up or surrender ourselves. So what we're doing is in ritual, is we're reenacting that. You know, by in sacrifice, we're reenacting that somehow. Whether we're conscious of that, of that, that that's what we're doing. That's what we're doing. You know, whether we're you know, we're killing an animal, we're killing a human, we're burning an offering of some kind. Whatever we're doing, we're taking our first fruits. Whatever we're doing, we're surrendering something as an object to become something as a subject. We're surrendering life. We're surrendering the self in order to commune with or to connect with God. Isn't that, isn't that interesting? And that's at the heart of all religions. And it's sort of like a reenactment of this process of self-consciousness, of the soul sort of releasing itself, voluntarily surrendering itself so that it can become subject and object simultaneously. All right, Hegel says, Self-consciousness that is at peace and satisfied in its ultimate being entered into self-consciousness as into its place of habitation. What has thus been revealed to self-conscious spirit within itself is being, and this has been revealed partly as the movement out of its concealment into consciousness. So that movement he's talking about is the changing of perspectives from subject to object, okay? Um, concealment, right? You, you don't know that you're God when you're a, when you, when you're a uh, object. That's the concealment. And then, then when, you, when you move back into the perspective of God, then you realize, oh, I'm God. So this is kind of what he's talking about here. 
And it, what I find also interesting is this first sentence where he says, he says that self-consciousness entered into itself as a place of habitation. So it's one thing for me to say something like consciousness descends within itself. It's a very mystical and hard to understand thing. What Hegel's saying is when, when consciousness descends into itself, the place it's descended into is its habitation, the place in which it exists. What is the place in which we exist? It's the cosmos, right? It's the cosmos. So that's what he's saying. Right? Consciousness exists as a place in which consciousness can exist. So you can imagine God creates the cosmos or becomes the cosmos and then fills it up with with himself. So now he is existing within itself as a place, as a place. So it's funny, we talk about God as a process earlier. Now we're talking about God as a place. It's really interesting. It's kind of mind-stretchy. And it's really important. You know, you have to be able to think about God in other ways because there, you know, there is no more abstract idea. We can't pigeonhole God into, you know, this anthropomorphic, you know, being on a cloud with a, wielding a thunderbolt. It's silly. Imagine God as a process. Imagine God as a place. What does that mean? Well, Hegel says... What has thus been revealed to self-consciousness within itself is being. So the place of habitation, that's being. That's here and now. Material reality. The cosmos. It's amazing. And Hegel describes that as a revelation. You know, experiencing of the cosmos is a revelation to consciousness. A revelation of what? Of what it is. You open up your eyes, you look around at the world. What you're seeing is, is a revelation. What you're experiencing is a revelation of what you are, consciousness. Hegel says, an act of the essential being is conscious of itself. Acting disturbs the peace of the substance and awakens the essential being. And by so doing, the unity is divided into parts and opened up into the manifold world of natural powers. So what is he saying here? He's just explaining that the act of consciousness is to be conscious of itself. And that when that happens, what that act does is that it divides consciousness into parts. And those parts are the, are the manifold world. It opens up into the manifold world of natural powers. What does he mean by natural powers? He means gravity. He means electromagnetism. He means the strong nuclear force, the weak nuclear force. He's talking about all of the things in reality that allow being to exist, that allow matter and energy to become human beings in the world. That's what he's talking about. Amazing. He says, if their natures first achieve actual reality, when he says their natures here, he's talking about consciousness as subject and object. He says, if their natures first achieve actual reality through the free self of individuality, it is equally true that they are the universal something which remains unrestricted and unconstrained by the inexhaustible elasticity of its unity and dissolves all that is individual in the current of its own continuity. So this is an interesting thing. It's poetic, but really all he's saying here is that it goes both ways. He says, he says if God, you know, uh, subject, if it achieves its actual reality by becoming an individual thing and then experiencing that individual thing, 
He says it's also true that the individual things all bleed back together into the continuity of consciousness, that all become one again. And this, this seems to be the goal of consciousness that Hegel keeps bringing up. He keeps supposing that we're leading towards this idea that consciousness becomes aware and then becomes aware of its own awareness, that somehow that is sort of the pinnacle of this process of consciousness. I don't know if I'll go entirely with him on that, only because I don't think there's an, an end or a pinnacle to the process of consciousness. We talked about that a, a bit earlier, but I think he's on to something. All right, he says, The objectively pr present reality, therefore, is one thing in itself and another for consciousness. The objectively present reality is one thing in itself and another for consciousness. You know, this reminds me again of the of the potential that I believe God to be or consciousness to be. The thing that I always say is like the Terminator 2 T1000, you know, could become anything material or the ones and zeros behind the matrix, that sort of thing. He said that's the objectively present reality. That's, you know, that's that's being. He says that's one thing for itself and another thing for consciousness. That would be like you and I looking out at the world and seeing houses and trees and people. And that exact same experience for God is ones and zeros. Or it's the, you know, Terminator 2 substance. That it's it's simultaneously two things at once. That reality is simultaneously two things at once. All right, he says, the process of action proves their unity in the mutual overthrow of both powers and the self-conscious characters. So here he's talking about the action, again, of consciousness, moving perspectives from the perspective of the subject to the perspective of the object, from the perspective of the knower to the perspective of the known, something like that. He's saying that that process goes both ways. It's like that's how it's a unity, because the process goes both ways, just like trying to understand opposites. You know, one opposite moves into the other, and the other moves into itself. They're, they're connected, you know, light and darkness. They're connected. You can't ever have one without the other. This is what he's trying to describe here, that it goes both ways. He says, for neither of them by itself is the real essence. Right? Subject or object by themselves are not the real essence. You need them both together. Opposites united, the Ouroboros. He says, The incarnation and in human form of the divine being begins with the statue, which, which has in it only the outer shape of the self, while the inner life thereof falls outside of it. Okay, so this is interesting. Um, he's saying that the incarnation of the human form of the divine being, he's saying to understand yourself to be something like that. Right, like a, like a form existing within consciousness that's been brought to life, that's been filled with consciousness. You know, um, it, the first step in understanding yourself like that is to make a statue, to make a representation. You know, I've used that word, you know, to describe being that you and I and, and the cosmos that were representations of God. Maybe maybe self-representations. He's calling that a statue. So you can imagine, like in the early days, when religion was being developed, they make a statue. And the statue is supposed to represent this divine being. But, but we haven't quite yet recognized that the divine being 
exists within us, not within the statue, something like that. Um, and, it, and so it's a process of development to first create that statue and then come to understand that the, that the divine being that you, that you project into that statue is existing right in your own heart and you just haven't noticed it yet. And then he says, the self is absolute being. I couldn't have put it any better. And this reminds me of uh, the idea of the coincidence of opposites we talked about that Miguel Chris brought up. So it means that God, in separating its being in order to experience itself, became God exactly in opposition to the other self that it also became. It's like if I'm an object... The subject that's opposite me is the thing that seems like God. It's the ever, ever-present eye. It's the, it's the all-seeing eye. It's the thing that's always witnessing me as, as, the, as the object. You know, that's a God, you know, the all-seeing eye. So it's something like trying to understand... <laughs> trying to understand the sequence of events here. Did God come first or did being come first? Did the chicken come first or did the egg come first? It's the same, it's the same kind of question. And it turns out that there's something, something more like mutually co-created. Something like that. All right, Hegel says, By thus offering itself up, it produces substance as subject. This subject remains its very own self. The result hereby affected is that the union and transfusion of both natures, subject and, and object, become apparent. So he's saying the recognition that you're both subject and object. So the recognition of consciousness, of God, recognizing itself, that that's something that happens when subject becomes object and when object becomes subject. It's part of the process that we keep talking about, of moving back and forth between perspectives, that it's within that process that consciousness is aware of itself. That consciousness can become self-consciousness. Um, and I'm not sure that's the right way of putting it, because self-consciousness doesn't become self-consciousness. It's always self-consciousness. And that's maybe another area of disagreement with me and, and Hegel, is that Hegel does sort of paint this process up as having a temporal order. Like this happens, and then this happens, and then this happens. Um, I'm not sure I go with that. I, in fact, I, I, th- I think I want to disagree with that pretty wholeheartedly. Uh, but, but the heart of this, I think, is still true. So let's, let's, keep, uh, uh, let's keep pushing on. Hegel says, Actual reality and being are its two moments. And by each relinquishing or emptying itself of itself, and by becoming the other, spirit thus comes into existence as their unity. Hmm. So when he says moments, he's talking about this shifting. But so me become our consciousness becoming subject and then becoming object. It's like I have a moment as subject and a moment as object. And this is kind of what I mean about this create this perception of time. I, I don't think he really means it. At least at least I won't go with him this far. But I do understand what he means, like consciousness existing in these two forms, and maybe going back and forth between the two. He says that this is 
like a ceasing to be subject in order to become object. It's emptying yourself of everything. It reminds you of reminds me of the ego death experience that people say they have in mystical experience, psychedelic experience, you know, fasting, um, you know, meditating, all kinds of th- things that to kind of get you there. But people who say they have this ego death experience would very much agree that they empty themselves of themselves and become something else. If your consciousness is free, let's say temporarily, um, of the constraints of your, the boundaries of your identity. And when that happens, you have a mystical experience. People, people have called it a one with the universe experience. That's what they mean, is that your identity comes to include everything and everyone else. So it, again, you, you have to sort of, you have to sort of self-sacrifice. You have to sort of die to yourself, to be reborn in this other form. And that's, that's something that you see in religious and mystical um, experience all, all through space and time. Uh, every, every religious um, tradition that I'm aware of has some kind of experience like this at its heart or some tradition of that same type of mystic experience. You know, not to mention what we already said about about uh, the idea of sacrifice being a part of uh, a religion for the same reason, emptying yourself of yourself. You know, voluntarily dying on the cross. You know, these are ideas like like this, dying to yourself to become something else. And then Hegel says, self consciousness is a one sided way of understanding its own relinquishment. So what he means here is that when you empty yourself of yourself. And you become something else. You, you know, you you become God. Let's say in that mystic experience, you're no longer yourself, right? You're no longer yourself. You're God. So the experience is only ever had on one side of that of that spectrum, on one side of the opposites. You know what I mean? You cease to be in your individual self when you have that one with the universe experience. So it's God having the, that experience, not you, not yourself. It's one sided. Then he says. God is beheld sensuously and immediately as a self, as a real human being. Only so is it a self-consciousness. So God experiences itself as a real individual human being. And that's the only way consciousness can be what it seems to be to us, self-consciousness. Now I might disagree with Hegel, although I don't know that he would that he would defend this idea that I would limit this to a human being. I would say when God experiences itself at, at as whatever it is that it's experiencing itself as, it doesn't have to be a human being. Um, but this is the way Hegel puts it. And then he says, consciousness sets out from immediate existence and finds God there. Beautiful. Consciousness sets out from immediate existence. You know, you open up your eyes one day and, you know, when you're born or the earliest memory you have, let's say, and that's where you begin. You set out from that experience of being and you eventually find God there within being, within yourself. He says, Incarnation of the divine being having the form of self-consciousness is the simple content of religion. Incarnation of the divine being is the simple content of religion. 
So that's obviously that's sort of an easy thing to, to say from the Christian perspective, where God becomes man. That's the incarnation of God. You know that you know that that makes perfect sense. But all religion, you know, to imagine any God that exists or any supernatural creature that exists is to is to place something like the spirit of life inside of a of a, a form, whether that's imaginary or not. So the incarnation of the divine being is at the heart of religion. He says there is something in the object always concealed from consciousness when the object is for consciousness in other. Something extraneous when consciousness does not know the object as itself. This concealment ceases when the absolute being is object of consciousness. For here the object is in the form of self, is manifest, revealed it itself in the object. Okay, so he's talking about an object, any object. You could take yourself or any object you want. He said, "There's always something there that's concealed that we're not that that that's not uh, that we don't have access to that we're not aware of. It's something concealed in that object. What he says that is is consciousness. He says something extraneous when consciousness does not know the object as itself. So when you don't recognize." the union of subject and object, when you don't understand every object is, in fact, the same thing as you, yourself. That's what makes them appear to be objects. That's the state of being. Then there's a different state of being where when that, when that division goes away between subject and object. And that's the state of being God. Something like that. Because he says the concealment ceases when the absolute being is conscious is object of consciousness. So, so there's a different state of being. That's that's sort of the the, the subject the perspective or the, or the God perspective. And then he goes on. He says, the self is just the inner being reflected into itself, the inner being which is immediately given and is the proper certainty of that other self for which it is object. The self is just the inner being reflected into the self. God within God. A pattern within a pattern. Amazing. He says the divine nature is the same as the human. And it is this unity which is beheld. That's the same as above, so below. That Hermes Trismegistus stuff that we always talk about. The divine nature is the same as the human. Preach, Hegel. He says, the absolute being existing as a concrete actual self-consciousness has attained for the first time its highest nature, its supreme reach of being. So he's saying that self-consciousness is now this, it's this being able to recognize God within yourself and your unity with everything, that, that that is sort of a supreme reach of being. It's the highest possible nature to reach. And it's something that's available to us that we should be striving for. This seems to be what he's talking about again, this goal, um, you know, this end game of self-consciousness. When he says the divine nature, the divine nature is the same as the human. He says the absolute being exists as a concrete actual self-consciousness, has attained for the first time its highest nature, its supreme reach of being. Unbelievable. He also says, the lowest is thus at the same time the highest. By that he just means, look, even, even within God, 
these fractured, separated bits of God that, that exist, these forms and patterns, you know, that those things are imbued with the fullness of consciousness, that they are God also. So the lowest is at the same time the highest. It doesn't matter where you're looking on that fractal scale. Everything is God. That's, and that's, that's the gist of the mystic experience. Everything is God. And this quote this quote's interesting for another reason. When he says the lowest is thus at the same time the highest, it reminds me of something Jesus said in the Gospels. Um, the least among you will be the first, something like that. So that's interesting. Hegel says that the supreme being is experienced. This is the culmination and consummation of its conception. That the supreme being is experienced. That's the culmination. What does that mean? Well, it means kind of what we already said. If the supreme being is consciousness, and what consciousness does is is experience, then, then consciousness has to find a way to experience, because that's what it is, right? It doesn't exist without experience, so it has to experience. That's the culmination, right? So what he means by the supreme being here is self-consciousness, that self-consciousness is the culmination. It's the experience of God. It's God's very own experience of itself. And that's what I always say when I say we are the experience God is having. That's, that's what I mean. Then Hegel says, God then is here revealed as he is. He actually exists as he is in himself. A pattern within a pattern. God is, he exists as he actually is within himself. A pattern within a pattern. That's that fractal image that, that shows, shows up to so many people in, a, in mystic intuition. I think that's what it means. That's legitimately what that means. And then there's this idea here, this recipro- reciprocity we keep talking about when we're describing opposites, um, that recognizing, recognizing yourself as God, simultaneously is God recognizing itself as me, you know? It's a simultaneous and mutual recognition. And it reminds me of a quote, I'm sure you guys have heard it, I can't remember who said it, but it's something like, stare long enough into the abyss, and the abyss looks back. That's what it reminds me of. Hegel says, The immediate form of this universality is the allness, the collective totality of selves. I just have to say, the allness, or the oneness, that's something that comes up in mystic intuition constantly. It's something you see in the pre-Socratic philosophers, in the Vedanta Hindu school. You see it all over the place. And people that, that... that believe in, in pantheism or in the idea that, that God and the cosmos are the same. That's the language you see. It's mystical language. And then he says the collective totality of selves. And I, I, just have to, I just have to remember, you know, Carl Jung's The Collective Unconscious or Buck's Cosmic Consciousness. That, that's what it sounds like to me. And then lastly, Hegel says, the individual human being is the immediately present God. Mm. So how do we wrap this up? How about we go back to where Hegel began? Where he first started, he said, 
that the understanding we hold about who and what we are is determined at the deepest level by how we imagine ourselves in relation to God. Further still, our understanding, or lack thereof, is critical to the possibility of our enlightenment. Are we God's creation? A manifestation of God's essence? Are we part of God? Or God itself? What, are, what we are, it seems, is dependent on how we came to be. Since Hegel has given us his own cosmogony or theogony, how we came to be, let's go ahead and use this same approach and see where we land. What and who are we? What is our relationship to God, according to Hegel? According to Hegel, we are not a creation or a manifestation of God, nor are we a part of it or the whole damn thing exactly. We are interestingly something more like all of these at once. We are mutually counterdependent and coexisting. What the hell does that mean? Well, we, we cannot be part of God as the whole of God exists within each part. And without parts, without the separation within itself that Hegel calls being, on the other hand, there would be no whole. You see, God relies on being and being on God. What they are, they are to and for one another. If this is hard to absorb, remember what McGilchrist said about the coincidence of opposites. He described how darkness relies on light and light on darkness in mutual opposition. Without the opposition, neither dark or light exists at all. This is to say that the creation of light is simultaneously the creation of darkness too. They emerge always together and inseparable. Opposites are always two things in division, which remain always one. They are mutually co-created. Another example for illustration. If you remember, um, if you remember our discussion of the psychologist John Piaget, he studied um, the mental development of children, trying to better understand how human beings develop their sense of self and the representation of the world. And in, it, and in Piaget's research, he discovered the strangest thing. He discovered that children did not seem to develop a personal identity or an ego, and then begin to map the external world, or even vice versa. Instead, Piaget found that a child's sense of self and its sense of the world around it emerged simultaneously and together. One does not occur without the other, as if they are somehow one and the same thing. Piaget put it this way. He said, Knowledge does not begin in the eye, and it does not begin in the object. It begins in the interactions. Then there is a reciprocal and simultaneous construction of the subject on one hand and the object on the other. Buddy. Amazing. Amazing. Okay, Hegel. So if subject and object, God and being, emerge simultaneously and together, they are mutually dependent and co-created. What does this say about what and who we are? In this vein, Hegel could say just as easily that God created being as to say that being created God. 
Both are necessary for God to be God, for consciousness to be conscious. So I ask again, what does this say about what and who we are? We are the life within God that animates God itself. We are the reflection of God within itself that reveals what it itself is. We are the experience of God that gives God experience. We are self-consciousness, God experiencing itself. Well, there you have it. That's one avenue explored, but infinitely more still to go. I hope you enjoyed thinking along with us. I know, I know. It's not easy work. Thinking. It's hard and full of uncertainties, but I'm grateful for the company as we trek through this together. Here's to hoping that the juice is worth the squeeze. See what I did there? Let's find out together in the next episode. <laughs>